Hi, this is Lynn. And I'm Maggie. We just came from hearing Asma Khalid talk as part of WOSU's panel discussion on women in politics. This This podcast podcast was recorded recorded at... 1.12 p.m. on June 4th. Things may change by the time you hear it. Keep up with all of NPR's political coverage at npr.org, on the NPR One app, and on your local public radio station like WOSU. Okay, here's the show! That was stroking my ego a bit. very sweet. Thank you, girls. (laughs) Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. We are here with a quick take on the next batch of primaries and some breaking news. The Supreme Court has ruled in favor of a baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And the president said this morning that he has the absolute right to pardon himself. I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. I'm Kelsey Snell. I cover Congress. And I'm Mara Lyason, national political correspondent. All right. So let's start the show with a big decision from the Supreme Court this morning. Uh, I would say it's a rather emotional case that's kind of generated a lot of chatter. SCOTUS decided in favor of a Colorado baker over a same-sex couple. The court decided 7-2. to two. Um, I know we have a lot of thoughts about all this, but I actually just want to quickly give kind of a recap um, to offer folks a little bit of context. So the backstory is that there is this gay couple. Uh, their names are Charlie Craig and Dave Mullins, who are planning a wedding reception for themselves out in Lakewood, Colorado. They go into this bake shop called Masterpiece Cake Shop, and the owner says, you know, decently polite to them, but basically basically says that I don't make cakes for same-sex weddings. He actually talked a little bit about this on uh, ABC's The View. I'm not judging these two gay men that came in. I'm just uh, trying to preserve my right as an artist to decide which artistic endeavors I'm going to do and which ones I'm not. So, Mara, we know that the court ruled in favor of the baker. Can you give us just a snapshot of what the actual decision itself was? What the court said is that the baker did not get a fair hearing when he took his complaint to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. They said that the commission demonstrated a hostility to religion. Mm -hmm. And the court ruled seven to two, which shows you it was not a big, broad decision because big decisions about huge issues are not decided seven to by this court. So writing for the majority, Justice Kennedy said that Colorado law can protect the right of anyone, gay, straight, black or white, to walk into a store, a public place and buy a product or service. But the law has to be applied in a manner that's neutral toward religion. He went out of his way to say very specifically this is not going to affect decisions on other cases in the future. This does not resolve the big tension between religious liberty and gay rights. So does that kind of hit at the idea that we've been hearing all morning about this being a narrow decision? And I've seen a lot of questions about this. You know, how can it be narrow? It was decided seven to two. And, and narrow, does it mean number of votes? It sounds it, like narrow, no, means, narrow means the issue was narrowed. You know, it might be easier to understand if we called it limited. Limited. So, yeah, yes, limited. Narrow could be a little bit misleading. And we've seen it be <laughs> on Twitter There's a lot and of the confusion. way it's being interpreted um, and in, just by other people who are putting out press releases. So just so I'm clear, this case, basically the decision that came down only resolves this specific case. Right. 
And for all the remaining questions that we hear about religious liberty, and Kelsey, to your point, we hear about it constantly, I would say, you know, in a political context, in the election cycle, we hear about it all the time. Those questions have not been resolved at all. They absolutely haven't. And you can expect with this decision that it actually elevates the question of religious liberty back into the conversation for the 2018 midterms in a way that maybe it had been fading into the background as we've been hearing all kinds of noise about other political issues like Russia and immigration. Now religious liberty has an opportunity to reemerge as a part of this culture war conversation that's happening and has been happening for years, if not decades, between Democrats and Republicans. Except that be- I would say it will only reemerge in the elections in a limited, narrow way because <laughs> this did not make a big change. This wasn't a huge victory for either side. It does restore it to the political debate, but... But do you think everyone gets that, though, Mark? No, I don't think so. I saw a press release from one of the Republican candidates running for governor in Georgia declaring this as a big win for religious liberty. Oh, I've got press releases from both sides saying it was a big win for their side. That shows you how confused people are. And I think that's actually why it's going to elevate this back into the broader conversation in the election, because people don't really know how to understand this. And to some degree, Republicans like this as an issue to talk about. They think that it is motivating for their base to talk about social issues, whereas Democrats have been working for some time to move the conversation away from social issues where they, you know, divide some of the more moderate voters that they would like to turn out for Democrats. They'd like to be talking about economic issues or, you know, bigger, broader jobs issues. And Mm -hmm. this puts them in a position where Republicans can force them to start talking again about where they fall on things like gay rights and bathroom issues and a number of things that Democrats were trying not to talk about this year. Yes, but that I think it will depend on are there big ballot referendums on the on the ballot. In other words, to to have it really be a a big issue in an election, there has to be some kind of way to 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 leverage it. I mean, you saw in the past that when you had ballot issues on gay rights, it it was a booster for turnout, usually on the Republican side. So I just wait and see to, after the primary season is over to see how many Republicans actually decide to take this up in competitive districts and risk being seen as against gay rights, which has broad support. That's a fair question. If, if, if The difference between a competitive district and somewhere yeah. where you're safe or in a statewide election where, say, if you're in a Mississippi or in Alabama, where it might feel like a winning strategy to have this be part of the conversation. Well, the big question about religious liberty, I guess, is still to be determined. But in terms of elections, let's actually talk a little bit about that, because eight states are holding primaries tomorrow. That is the largest voting day we have seen so far this primary season. Uh, Just for some perspective, you will have 85 House seats up for a vote tomorrow in one single day. There will be primaries in California, Mississippi, Alabama, Iowa, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico and South Dakota. That's a lot of states. It's a ton. (laughs) Uh, I I feel like it is going to give us, though, a little bit more evidence of what way the winds are shifting this primary season. I think we've all had a lot of questions ever since the 2016 presidential election about what we will see in the midterms, right? Are Democrats energized? Are they enthusiastic? Will they show up? And tomorrow we'll shed a little bit of light on that. So to both of you, what are you hoping to glean from what we'll actually see in the results tomorrow? I think I am looking out for whether or not the strategy that both Republicans and Democrats are trying to run uh, in the House will work. Democrats are trying to we 
weed out some of the most progressive candidates in these competitive districts where they're trying to pick up Republican seats and turn them into Democratic seats. They're trying to keep the progressives out of that conversation. Mm -hmm. And then looking to see if they will be successful at that. Republicans, on the other hand, are trying to paint this as a fight between unreasonable Democrats who are going against the president and Republicans who will support the president. And these will be further tests of whether or not that strategy works on both sides. Yeah. And for me, I'm just looking for some pretty basic, big data points. Turnout. You know, do Democrats overperform a lot from where they were in 2014? That's been the trend this year. Does it continue tomorrow night? And uh, also, of course, looking at California to see yes. if the top two primary system backfires against Democrats who, because of all one of the the um, side effects of all that enthusiasm on the Democratic side is they just had too many people running in some of these primaries, too many Democrats. And uh, if you split the Democratic vote a million ways, you let two Republicans sneak through, possibly, because that's what the two top two primary system does. It takes the top two winners, whether they're two Republicans or two Democrats, and that could really put a damper on Democrats' chances to to pick up seats if they can't even get one Democrat into the runoff. And, and Kelsey, you just came back from a pretty big reporting trip throughout Southern California. You were in a number of these competitive toss-up districts. Uh, the Democrats are hoping to pick up but what do you see? I mean, does it seem like they can pick up all those districts? Uh, they, it does not necessarily seem like they can. And they are definitely worried. It is a very tense time out there. Every single canvassing office I went to, every campaign office I stepped into, that was the message that Democrats were trying to get out there is please unify around people who can get elected. At least National Party Democrats are trying to get that message out there. And the message I'm hearing from from progressives and people who are polling in the single digits is the whole point of the Democratic Party is supposed to be that it's a big tent and voters should be able to decide what kind of Democratic Party or what kind of Democrat they want to represent them. California just doesn't really offer that kind of opportunity in these primaries. Because like you said, if t the top two system means that if there are other Republicans running and Democrats have broken themselves apart into a million pieces, they're not really getting to choose because at the end of the day, they may not get onto the ballot. Let me ask you a question, Kelsey, because this is a the Democrats are a party that has been united by a fervent, even ferocious desire to win. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is what you've seen uh, all year. And you had the Democratic State Party endorsing a different candidate than the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in some of these primaries. Yes. And all of the efforts that the National Democrats took to to beg some of these low polling candidates, you know, please drop out. Mm -hmm. So you give a Democrat a chance to win. Otherwise, you're going to leave the seat to a Republican. Why did those pleas fall on deaf ears? I think it's in part because there are a lot of progressives who feel like they were validated in 2016. They feel like they deserve more of a space here. And they think that the party did things wrong in 2016, that that they, the progressives, can write in California. So, so Kelsey, you know, we've been talking a lot about how Democrats would be potentially locked out of some really competitive House races. What I have found so fascinating about California is at the same time, it seems like Republicans may get locked out of some of the statewide races, if not all of the statewide races that are going yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, that comes down to the fact that California is still d predominantly a state that is Democratic as at its whole because they have these big urban centers that vote for Democrats. And the reason why it's so important that Republicans don't get shut out of these general elections for statewide offices is not because they 
will have a chance to win. I mean, I don't think we've had a do we, do we have any Republican statewide office holders in California? I don't think so. It's really important for them to have someone at the top of the ticket to energize Republicans to come out and vote yes, for down yes, ballot races. Absolutely. Because if you don't have if you have two Democrats running for Senate or governor, What's the point of turning out if you're a Republican well, just for your local congressional race? That's a harder sell. And that gets back to the ballot initiative question that we were talking about. California uses a ton of ballot initiatives mm-hmm. to drive turnout. And uh, Republicans are trying to get some some measures onto the ballot in order to keep that going. Let's talk because there are a whole bunch of other states voting besides California tomorrow. Um, to, to both you, Mara or, or Kelsey, are there states that are really interesting to you that we ought to be paying attention to that could maybe give us a little bit of clues just broadly about some of the trends that you think will be important? Well, I'd, I'd nominate Iowa. Iowa is kind of the mirror image of California. It's a place where Democrats have been increasingly locked out. It's a place that's probably been one of the swingiest state. It went from being a Barack Obama state twice to a Donald Trump state. And uh, in 2012, Democrats had three of Iowa's five House seats. Now they only have one. So there's a lot at stake for Democrats in Iowa. They are really trying to claw their way back. And we'll see how much enthusiasm and turnout they've got tomorrow night. I agree with you there, Mara. What about you, Kelsey? I'm watching New Jersey, where we have a lot of uh, seats that Democrats are going to try to turn from Republican to Democrat. There are a number of retirements in this state, Republican retirements. And there are a number of these suburban districts that Democrats for months have been saying are their main target places where you have Republican voters who don't like the president who might just show up and vote for Democrats or just might not show up. (laughs) And so they are they're really going to be battling it out there. And I think it it will be one of the earlier parts of the night uh, tests of whether or not that strategy is working for Democrats. All right. Well, Kelsey, let's leave you there because I know that you actually have to do some reporting and get additionally prepared for these primaries tomorrow. And when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about President Trump because, you know, we can hardly do a podcast without talking about the president. Support for NPR and the following message come from Newsy, the TV news channel with honest, in-depth context on the stories that matter. Newsy is for people who aren't satisfied with getting only the loudest part of the story. Newsy delivers more, more context, more solutions, and greater understanding of the people and events that shape our world. Learn more at newsy.com watch. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. We've also got Ryan Lucas with us now here in the studio. Hey, Ryan. Hi there. So we want to talk about, uh, well, actually, we want to start by just talking about the president's Twittering this morning. Uh, He had a busy morning, and he was discussing a whole bunch of things around the economy, trade deals. But there's one that he sent out around 8.30ish in the morning. Mm -hmm. Can you read that for us? Uh, Yes, I can. And here is what he said on Twitter. As has been stated by numerous legal scholars, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. But why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong? In the meantime, the never-ending witch hunt led by 13 very angry and conflicted Democrats and others continues into the midterms, exclamation point. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Trademark. first question, does he actually have this power legally? Well, that's something that is 
kind of open for debate. Legal scholars kind of go both ways on this. Some conservative scholars go go much farther in terms of granting the president uh, certain powers. It hasn't been tried before, so we don't really know. There's no precedent at this point. But there are arguments both ways. So one of the arguments for is that under the Constitution, the president has the pardon power, which we've seen before, and all presidents have, have really taken advantage of that. There are two exceptions. That would be in cases of impeachment and in state proceedings. So if you're convicted in state court, you can't be hmm. uh, pardoned by the president. Now, what some scholars would say is that it, since you have those those two exceptions specified and there is no specification that the president can't pardon himself, then perhaps he therefore can. Now, reasons against, there's this kind of simple concept that you can't be the judge in your own case. So why is he tweeting about this right now? Why do you think, Mara? I think because there was a letter that was leaked where his attorneys laid out the theory that he was pretty much untouchable, that executive power was so strong and vast that uh, he couldn't be subpoenaed or indicted, or um, he really doesn't have to sit down with Bob Mueller if he doesn't want to. And I think uh, the president is is asserting a pretty robust view of executive power, whether he's planning on going all the way to the Supreme Court to test this, we don't know. But he also tweeted today, he said, the special counsel law is totally unconstitutional. And what's really interesting about that is, if that's what he thinks, why is his own Department of Justice abiding by it? Why aren't they challenging it in court? So, Mara, you had mentioned this letter. And Ryan, I want you to tell us a little bit more, actually, about the letter itself, because all of this talk, even the president's you know, Twitter messages, all stemmed essentially from this letter that was obtained by The New York Times over the weekend, in which there were two sort of main points, right? One is that the president could not be accused of obstruction of justice. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Well, he could be accused of it, but he can't actually obstruct obstruct justice. And then the second is that he did not need to actually sit down for any sort of formal interview with the special counsel. Is that right? Yes, those are those are two of the main points. And it's important to remember that while this letter was written in January uh, and it was delivered to the special counsel's office in January, these are arguments that we have heard from Trump's legal team for the past several months, dating back to perhaps even before January. So the fact that they're making these arguments is not in them in and of themselves new. But what we're seeing is kind of spelled out point by point their legal rationale Mm. um, for making them. Uh, Yeah. So they say the president can't obstruct justice because he's the head of the executive branch. Um, He can't obstruct himself. He is Mm. he's the ultimate authority and he gets to make these decisions. If he wants to open an investigation, they say he can open an an investigation. If he wants to close an investigation, he can do that. What they're doing is, is basically saying that he has these broad sweeping presidential powers that are completely unfettered. It's a rather remarkable view of executive power. It is, but there there are people in conservative legal circles who believe in this this unitary executive where all legal power, all executive power rests with the president and this jibes with that understanding mm. with that with that legal view, with that legal interpretation. Mara, how unprecedented is that view of executive power though? Well, I don't think that any president has pushed it as far as Trump seems to be suggesting that he might. Now, we don't know what he'll do in the end, because remember, Bill Clinton was subpoenaed, but he didn't want to appear before a grand jury. So what they did is they worked out a deal where the subpoena was withdrawn and he was deposed. The point is that Bill Clinton got right up to the edge of this controversy, but then never took it to its fullest confrontation. They worked out a deal and he 
did talk to the special counsel. Ryan, one so, thing you were telling us before I actually popped into the studio that I thought was really interesting is just sort of the the frequency of leaks that we've had as of late, right? Um, this this information, this letter came out because of a leak over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to get a better sense of what exactly is going on, if either one of you have some thoughts. If you look at the timeline uh, from when Rudy Giuliani, the president's new lawyer, came on uh, in mid to late April, um, as well as the man who's taken over as kind of the White House, chief White House lawyer regarding the Russia investigation, a man by the name of Emmett Flood. They were perceived um, as two people who would provide a far more aggressive legal approach uh, regarding the special counsel's office. And I think that we've seen that. And every one of these leaks serves president's argument uh, that he is untouchable by the special counsel, that he has broad powers that protect him from an indictment or a subpoena. Um, And it also signals how far he's willing to take this fight. And the other thing that, that it has done is it has provided the White House and the president's supporters the ability to accuse Mueller's team of leaking information in order to taint the waters. Except that they have not done that very loudly because I would say the overwhelming conventional wisdom is that these things were not leaked by Robert Mueller. But when Donald Trump and his team want to accuse someone of leaking, they do it with a big, loud chorus. And that you're not seeing that right now. And I think that's because the widely held view is these did not come from Bob Mueller. But regardless of who's actually leaking these, doesn't it do the collective goal of discrediting the Mueller investigation in the eyes of Republicans in an election year in which that is very valuable politically? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and what we have actually seen uh, in polls over the past several months is a shift in perceptions of Mueller's investigation. Democrats, of course, continue to very much support uh, and approve of Mueller's in investigation. Republican approval in March, late March, was around just shy of 30 percent. And by the first part of May, that had dropped to around 15. All right. I think that's a wrap for today. We will be back on Wednesday with primary results, if we're not back sooner than that. Our email address for your comments, questions, and timestamps recorded for the beginning of the show is nprpolitics at npr.org. You can keep up with our coverage on npr.org, NPR Politics on Facebook, and of course, on your local public radio station. I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. I'm Ryan Lucas. I cover the Justice Department. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.